0: Section 53 of the Catholic Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Catholic Ready Answer by the Reverend M.P. Hill. Labor unions: A false principle, strikes, boycotts, and other such expedients employed by labor unions are the only weapons they can wield in their defense. Why may they not be used in the most effective way possible? In time of war one cannot be overnice in his choice of means to attain his end. The truth. We are not going to write a dissertation on labor unions. We are only anxious to guard our workingmen against pernicious principles which are not always enunciated as plainly or as boldly as they are above. But which are nevertheless embodied in outward acts. There is danger of all democratic movements of our day being guided by the principle that everything is right that succeeds, that the great thing is to get there, no matter by what way. But there is a right and a wrong way in collective action as well as in individual action, and fundamentally both are to be governed by the same moral principles. Strikes. The assumption that there is a state of real warfare between employers and employed is unfortunately in our day an actual factor in the working out of the problems of industrial life, so that we are dealing here with no chimera. When a strike is ordered, it is often taken for granted that the strikers are at liberty to do pretty much as an army does in invading hostile territory, and yet not even the laws of civilized warfare are observed. No laws of any kind govern the action of a mass of men whose principle is get what you can, no matter how. A strike is not a war. A war is the extremest of measures used to attain human ends. Violence is its very essence. Its immediate aim is to kill, capture, or starve as many of the enemy as possible. Nothing can justify it but an evil threatened or endured is great or greater than the evil inflicted by the war." Now in the judgment of saner minds, the present posture of affairs does not justify anything in the nature of strict warfare. Even on a small scale, the classes are not separated by any line of demarcation that places them in opposite camps. The working man has sincere friends in the higher classes. The real grievances, such as they are, result from conditions that cannot be changed in a hurry. Specific methods have wrought all the beneficial changes that have affected workingmen, and although there is still a great deal to mend in the present situation, workingmen as a body have made steady progress in bettering their condition. It is not, therefore, or at least should not be, a matter of two opposing forces, each bent on the destruction of the other. The fact is that each of the two classes is indispensable to the other socialists have dreams of a state of things in which all distinction of classes will be abolished but as the reader may see from other parts of this book they are no more than dreams a strike has in it of course an element of hostility harm is done to the employer and harm is intended it is through the harm done to his business by the strike that the strikers hope to compel him to be just nevertheless though harm is done and intended a strike is justifiable under certain conditions justice forbids me to do harm to my fellow man but justice to myself may sometimes warrant me in coercing my fellow man into being just in his dealings with me what form and what measure of coercion i am allowed to use must depend on circumstances reckless violence can never be permitted violence of any kind or degree should be the very last resort in cases in which coercion is needful and allowable, a strike is regarded with favor by the moralist for the following reasons. One, it is the form of coercion furthest removed from turbulence and anarchy. Two, it is, after all, only the exercise of the workingman's natural right to work or to refuse to work for any particular employer. But let us not be misunderstood on this point. From a moral point of view, there is, of course, a great difference between the case of a single workman withdrawing from the service of any particular employer, and that of a combination of workmen doing the same. In the first case, at least ordinarily, no harm is done the employer, and the workman exercises his natural right. But the combination inflicts an injury, and the injury is intended, though presumably not for its own sake, and although each member of the combination has a natural right to leave the service of his employer, he has no right of any kind to conspire with others in the adoption of a measure entailing injury to his employer, unless the common grievance of the workman outweighs the right of the employer to the peaceful pursuit of his calling. In a just strike, the grievance of the employees has, as a matter of fact, such preponderating importance and hence it justifies the workingmen in availing themselves of their natural right. A strike may be just or unjust, and it is just only when it is in harmony with the common laws of morality. The chief part of the responsibility for unjust strikes rests with those who issue orders for them in the labor unions. But the men of the rank and file are not machines. They have minds of their own, and consciences of their own, and the moral law forbids them to pay blind obedience to orders on the pretext that the responsibility is not theirs but their officer's. The following rules should be carefully kept in mind. 1. A strike should not be resorted to when milder expedients are available. Arbitration is a means of settlement that has been successful in many cases. Why can it not be so in all cases? things have come to a strange pass when the decision of three, five, or seven men chosen as arbiters by the mutual consent of the contending parties cannot be trusted. A refusal to accept arbitration usually gives rise to the suspicion that the party refusing has little reliance on the justice of its cause and is determined to impose its will on the other party. 2. The demands of the strikers should be reasonable when wages are unreasonably low, when negotiations on the subject have resulted in nothing, and when more pacific measures are not within reach, a strike would ordinarily be justifiable. When wages are reasonably high, and especially when they procure for the working man some of the comforts of life, a strike would very seldom be justifiable. It is often difficult to decide in particular cases whether or not wages are unreasonably low, but surely the principle would be a false one that should hold the working man down to a wage that secures for him only the bare necessities of life. Every manual laborer is entitled to a moderate share in the simplest comforts of life and should be able to lay aside a little for a rainy day. Hence, any refusal of wages necessary for the procuring of these advantages would justify a strike. Unless, of course, other circumstances in the case forbade one. The same rule applies to the demand for shorter hours of work. To have to toil the livelong day is unreasonable. The working man is entitled to a moderate amount of leisure. How much can or ought to be allowed him must depend on circumstances. There can be no fixed rule, and the insistence on a fixed rule, especially for all working men, irrespective of circumstances, may easily be unjust to employers. A demand for eight hours daily labor for all classes of workingmen is probably quite arbitrary. 3. Strikes should not be accompanied by violence or by any form of physical coercion. When violence is added to abstention from labor, a strike ceases to be a strike. It becomes a state of war. If even a peaceful strike can be resorted to only for grave reasons, the added element of violence and disorder, including, as it does, injury to person and property, can be justified only by exceptionally grave reasons. Under ordinary circumstances, the use of destructive violence, even on a small scale, is not allowable. Even the milder forms of personal violence or coercion, such as the preventing of a non-striker from entering the workshop, or the driving him from his work, are an invasion of personal liberty which can rarely be justified and should rarely occur there may be cases in which the non-striker acts a very selfish part and is bound in charity to cooperate with the strikers but the latter are as a rule bound to respect his independence the necessities of his family may oblige him to work or he may have conscientious scruples about engaging in the strike but in anything like ordinary circumstances He has a right to decide whether he shall work or not, and it would take a very strong reason, based on the common good, to justify his being coerced into abstention from work. 4. Probability of success is necessary for the justification of a strike. It stands to reason that when the chances are considerably against the success of a strike, a measure entailing so much loss to employer and employed cannot be defended. 5 a sympathetic strike is less easily justified than a primary one. A sympathetic strike is one in which the strikers have no grievance of their own, but quit work in order to help on a strike by another set of workmen, either under the same or under another employer. If sympathetic strikes are defended on the principle that a man may help his fellow man in their just contests, must be remembered that helping the oppressed is one thing, injuring the innocent another. If I help A against B, who is injuring him, it does not follow that I can injure C, who is not concerned in the affair. In some cases it would be lawful for one class or set of workmen to help by a sympathetic strike another set or class of workmen in the same establishment engaged in a just strike. For if the strike is just in the case of the primary workers, their grievance may be taken up by their sympathizers but it is very difficult to find a reason justifying a strike directed against an employer who is fair in his dealings with his own workmen. The fact that he furnishes material to an employer against whom a just strike is being maintained is not a sufficient reason for a strike, except in those very rare cases in which charity would oblige him to help the oppressed to his own detriment, and in which pressure might be brought to bear upon him To bring him to a sense of his duty, boycotts. The moral bearings of boycotts are much the same as those of strikes. A boycott is an agreement among several or many to abstain from dealing with a person in business or from having intercourse with him in professional or social life. As it consists in simple abstention, but yet entails an injury, it falls under the same moral rules as the strike. It is rarely allowable. And all the more rarely as the common good is seriously threatened by the tendency to anarchy begotten by such practices. The secondary boycott, as it is called, is less rarely justified than the primary or ordinary boycott. It is directed against one who refuses to break off intercourse with a person who is primarily boycotted, against a tradesman, for instance, who continues to supply material for manufacture to an establishment that is under a boycott. The secondary boycott is an invasion of personal liberty which none but the very gravest reasons can justify. A practice akin to boycotting is the refusal of union men to work in the same shop as non-union men. It is a restriction of the opportunities of non-union workingmen which it takes a great deal to justify. Ordinarily, no one is obliged to join a labor union there may be cases in which conscience forbids, and although the union may be considerably hampered by the fact that non-union men are very numerous, the interests and principles of the latter are nevertheless to be respected. There may possibly be very exceptional cases in which all working men in one trade are in duty bound to join the labor union, but they are not the ordinary cases, the dictation of how many apprentices shall be employed in one establishment has the same moral bearings as most of the other practices of unionists. An overplus of apprentices may be an evil, but it is one that must be borne with, except when it has reached the extreme of severity. The opportunities of those who aspire to learning an honorable trade must not be restricted without any great necessity." Attempts to limit the output of individual workmen in a manufactory can be excused only under exceptional circumstances. The injuring of machinery and the destruction of goods is a piece of barbarism which all civilized unionists ought to endeavor to block out of industrial life. In the course of these remarks it must be evident to every reader that we have not condemned without any discrimination the practices of strikers and boycotters, the more weighty the grievance, and the more removed the tactics from injustice and barbarism, the more easily is the use of so extreme a measure as a strike or a boycott allowed. The cause for which strikers or boycotters contend in any particular case may be a just one, and a strike or a boycott may be the only available means of contending for it. But who will decide the justice of the cause or the rectitude of the methods employed? Even the trained moralist and the expert in economics would often find it difficult to decide whether a strike was justifiable. Shall then the decision be entrusted to the untrained judgments of a promiscuous mass of workingmen who are all interested parties and who are not disposed to enter into the views of their opponents? And is it not well known that some of the leaders in such affairs are indifferent to the methods they adopt and consider that all is grist that comes to their mill. These considerations should make it evident that, although in the abstract a strike may be a perfectly lawful procedure, strikes in the concrete should be looked at askance, seeing that they foster such pernicious tendencies and occasion so much material loss. Hence it is the duty of the citizens of a country to do all in their power to get rid of strikes, boycotts, and the tyrannous element in labor union procedure. Direct government legislation in the matter of the minimum wage, or of the maximum price of commodities, or of the length of a laborer's workday, may be considered by some as a last resort in any country of acknowledged free institutions, but things are drifting in that precise direction, and we for our part cannot see the unwisdom of subjecting such legislation to the test of experience. Little or no objection can be urged against indirect legislation. Such, for instance, as would oblige the parties in a dispute to submit their case to arbitration and abide by the decision given. Strikes contain a comment on the times which every man of reflection should take to heart sharp opposition between the classes is rooted partly it is true in the conditions of social and industrial life but it is no less deeply rooted in the perverse tendencies of the classes themselves ultra democracy on the one side and ultra aristocracy on the other both aggravated by the rapid decrease of religious influence are accountable at least for the fact that the mutual opposition of the classes has reached so acute a stage, and it is only by a reversal of these conditions that things can be thoroughly and permanently righted. We do not despair of the power of governments to mitigate the social distemper, but governmental remedies rarely go to the heart of such diseases. Each of the two great classes must be taught, by every means available, its own proper ideals, and this education of the classes must be begun in the schoolroom, and at the altar. Writers of our day frequently point to the guilds of the Middle Ages as teaching an object lesson on the conditions of labor and the relations between employers and employed, but writers and readers alike should remember that the guilds were religious to the core, and that religious charity was the ultimate principle of their inner life and of their external influence. End of Section 53